Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really lovely to be here. So nice to be in person. Um, We did have the miracle of Zoom, and it was a miracle that I was able to do Zoom, because I'm not really a techie person. And that was great that we could do that. And we really enjoyed um, delivering those training evenings. And and I've just always felt such a welcome here um, from Tim and from Rob. And it's really great. I'm really a people person. And I'm so glad to be here in person um, this morning and to be able um, to share with you. A little bit about me, for over 30 years, um, I've been involved in working with those who faced an unintended pregnancy or who have experienced um, maybe abortion or miscarriage or stillbirth and maybe struggling um, following that. And that has been my journey. I had three miscarriages before I had my, um, actually had twins, uh, my children. And so I know a little bit of that grief and that brought me into this whole area of work. And that's been a huge um, privilege uh, for me. Prior to that, I worked as a social worker for several years until I met and I married my husband, Derek. Now, Derek was a Baptist pastor, so that was a bit of a challenge in itself, marrying somebody that was a pastor, you know. (laughs) But then even a greater, more greater challenge than that was the fact that he was a widower and he had five young children. So I'm not really Jenny Baines, I'm actually Julie Andrews, you know, if you get that. And then we went on uh, to have twins, and there should be now a picture um, of uh, our eight, and then we had another little girl, so actually we raised eight children, I don't know if you can see, oh it looks a bit fuzzy, sorry, Uh, okay, so that's a ragtag bunch of children as you can see, um, lined up there from the shortest to the tallest, and just so that you know they did survive, because they look a bit rough there, Um, here's a picture a few years later, Um, again, um, this was at a family uh, celebration, Um, the the order of height had changed a little bit by then, but life was interesting, I was just chatting to Liz a little bit before the service, life was busy, and it was certainly very interesting, and I often say that at that point in my life, I actually exchanged community social work for residential childcare. (laughs) That's what it felt a little bit like. So then the next open slide, I think. For over 20 years, Derek and I, we led churches together um, until very sadly, he died uh, 14 years ago. He died of a a heart attack, just totally out of the blue. Um, And in a couple of moments, really, my life just changed. And so I began on a little bit of a different journey, still embracing the same work that we were involved with in our church. Um, but I now work um, as a consultant for care. Some of you may be familiar with care. It's been around a long time now. It's a major Christian charity based in Westminster. And they seek to represent us in the public arena, if you like. They do advocacy work. Um, and they speak out on issues which would concern us as Christ followers. Um, they're just a wonderful um, organisation. They work very much with MPs and other agencies in our governments, just with issues, ethical issues that we would be concerned with. And one of those, of course, is the beginning of life. Um, And they do speak out, as I say, in an advocacy role. But the the initiative that I work with, Open, actually is a pastoral response. It's not a campaigning, there's no campaigning element. We want to bring a pastoral response um, to these very sensitive issues. Um, and so for the past uh, seven or years ago, we've been um, seeking to help churches with training and speaking and just opening up this issue to help churches create an environment where these sensitive issues can be shared without fear of judgment 
um, and shared with grace. Sometimes we're not so great as Christians at doing that. And that is our aim, is to help churches, and I sense this is that church already, the fact that you have me here, um, but where we can create environments of grace um, that people can feel safe in sharing. And where we talk about it, the same as we talk about debt counselling or mental health issues, it's one of those things that we talk about and we recognise um, can be struggles for people. Um, because sadly, you know, I've met many women and families who feel that sometimes church is the last place they can talk about things like abortion and actually even miscarriage. We're not great at talking about it, you know. And I believe that it should be the first place uh, where we can share about it. And so our heart is to equip churches and to help churches to be those places where these things can be shared. Um, so I don't... Oh. I don't know any of you here today, and there may be some already feeling a little bit nervous, maybe butterflies in the tummy, thinking, what's she, what's she going to say? Maybe those watching online as well. I don't know you at all. Um, and you may be apprehensive, but I just want to say, this isn't going to be a discussion of all the complex issues around abortion, around pregnancy loss. I mean, there's so much we could say, and maybe little hint here, maybe we could do a whole pastoral training day at some point, that would be great, because it is a complex issue, there's a lot involved. Um, but today I really want us to think about how we, as Christ followers, um, can create within our churches and within us, and within our families, and with our, within our acquaintances and, and our circle of friends, where we can create that safe place um, where those for whom this is part of their story can share and talk about it. I love stories. Anybody that knows me, you would know that I love stories. And, and, I'm good, and I love gifts. I really, I like birthdays. I like Christmas. I like gifts. And I want to share now with, with you one of my favourite stories. It's been around a while now, but written by the wonderful writer John Ortberg. Some of you might have read some of his books. And this is a story when he tells of a time, a long time ago now, when he and his wife made a momentous decision. Um, the next yeah, slide, thank you. He says, some years ago, we traded in my old Volkswagen Super Beetle for our first piece of new furniture, a mauve sofa. Actually, it was roughly the bright pink colour of Pepto-Bismol, but because it represented to us a substantial investment, we thought mauve sounded better. The man at the furniture store warned us not to get it when, we found out, when he found out we had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he said. Get something the colour of dirt. <laughs> but we had the naive optimism of young parenthood. We know how to handle our children. We said, give us the mauve sofa. From that moment on, we all knew clearly the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or even think about the mauve sofa. Remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. <laughs> and then he said, then came the fall. On one day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. That's our jam, I think. So my wife, who had chosen the most sofa and adored it, lined up our three children in front of it. Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. <laughs> Do 
you see that, children, she asked. That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put that stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. <laughs> Don't you love that about kids? <laughs> Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they'd never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't, because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the time-out chair. <coughs> I knew they wouldn't, because I was the one <laughs> who had put the stain on the mauve sofa. And I knew I wasn't going to say anything. I figured I would find a safe place to confess, perhaps in a book that I was going to write, maybe. <laughs> you know, the truth is, of course, that we have all stained the sofa. Some of the stains are small and barely noticeable, but some of them bleed through the entire fabric of our lives. They are the stains that we regret in the wee cold hours of the night as we lie in bed staring at the ceiling, perhaps wishing that we could go back and relive some moments and maybe get things right this time. They may be the stains that if we don't regret them, we ought to, and we would if our hearts were working right. All of us, all of us here, will have to spend time in front of the sofa. I know I've spent lots of time in front of the sofa. And you know, this isn't just a modern concept. Approximately a thousand years ago, David, the king and psalmist, wrote with, about his time, need for time in front of the sofa. In Psalm 38, verse 4, he said, My guilt overwhelms me. It's a burden too heavy to bear. But then in one of my favourite verses from Isaiah 1, verse 18, we read, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. I just love this verse. And I love that approximately 750 years before Christ, in those kind of primitive times, if you like, God was portrayed as wanting to meet and to reason and to talk with us, and he still does, and to talk with his people. And he wants to do that with us today as well. He wants to talk about those things which we do, which cause us to miss his very best for our lives. That's one when people ask me sometimes, especially if it's on a, a secular kind of interview, well, how would you describe sin? I think actually it's when we miss God's very best for our lives. He wants to meet with us and he wants to give us a wonderful gift today. The assurance that through Jesus, we can know him and we can be known by him in love, that extravagant love, eternally. I sometimes wonder, I don't know about you, how God feels when he gives us free will and then he sees what we do with it. I mean, the world's in a mess at the moment, isn't it? You know, how does God feel when he sees us doing this? And again, this isn't a modern concept. Think of the children of Israel who time and time again rebelled and they messed up and they wandered away. And yet in another ancient text, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, we read, The Lord did not set his heart on you 
and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. <laughs> and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. God gives us the gift of his unfailing love. In fact, he doesn't only give it, he lavishes it on us, his extravagant love. And when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of that wonderful, another favorite story of mine, that wonderful account in Luke um, chapter seven, uh, when Jesus received a lavish gift and he gave back a wonderful gift in return. So Luke 37, 36 to 50, and Liz is going to come and read it to us now. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from, the city, from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people. 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he looked to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I just love that story, don't you? They're just the wonderful Jesus uh, that we have. In the time leading up to this, Jesus had been proclaiming that God loves sinners, a message with which the Pharisees actually didn't agree. They believed that God only cared for righteous people who kept the law. And so this meal at the house of Simon the Pharisee was planned so that they could put this young rabbi right. During the meal, a woman who was well known as a sinner witnessed along with all who were present that Simon had neglected to offer the traditional courtesies of hospitality to Jesus. This was a blatant insult to Jesus, and at this point, he could really, would reasonably, he could have left the house. 
But I love the fact that Jesus chose to enter and he reclined on the couch. And then this woman came and moistened his feet with her tears and then anointed them with precious oil before drying them with her hair. Now for this story to make sense, we can assume that the woman would have known that she would never have reached the standards imposed by the Pharisees. The rabbinical definition of repentance included contrition of heart, confession of the lips, and making compensation. So if this woman had asked anybody about compensation for her sins, she most likely would have been told, in your case, no chance. (laughs) But she had heard that Jesus ate with sinners, that he proclaimed that God loves sinners, and she'd already received the gift of forgiveness, even though she couldn't make compensation for her past. And so she was eager to show her gratitude to this man who had set her free from the shame um, of her past. Now her acts would have shocked the righteous in the room and came at a great cost to her, as we know, both financially and socially. I don't know whether you know, but I'm sure you do, but in this culture, women were seen as inferior to men. Jesus was so radical, you know, in how he uh, treated women. Synagogue prayers began with, blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. (laughs) What do we think about that, ladies? And women sat in a separate screened off section in the synagogue. And in the temple, they were only admitted as far as the court of Gentiles and the court of women. Mixing socially with women was frowned on, and rabbis taught that men shouldn't talk with a woman in public, not even with their own wives. I was chatting to my sister at breakfast this morning, said, actually, Derek would have probably quite liked that, have a trip out without me talking all the time. (laughs) But just, isn't that terrible though, and just imagine the scene uh, that we've just read about, where this woman comes into the house where Pharisees were eating, and letting go of her fear and her need for those approval, she made this radical, extravagant gift to Jesus. I learnt that the act of a woman unbinding and letting down her hair in public was seen by the rabbis as being sexually provocative and could be grounds for divorce and for punishment. And in fact, in traditional Middle Eastern society, the first time a man saw his bride's hair loose was on their wedding night. And so all in this room, can you imagine, they would have been so shocked by this woman's gesture and understood that she was making a serious pledge of loyalty to Jesus as she came with this gift of radical and sacrificial worship. But then too, notice the radical actions of Jesus in response. Simon and the observers expected Jesus to reject her actions But he chose to defend her by telling this parable about two debtors. And the message of that was that those who had been forgiven most, they loved the most. And in this religious community, to be touched by a sinner would entail then having to go through onerous purification rites. But Jesus wasn't concerned by this. He turned towards the woman and in so doing, consciously turned his back on Simon and reproved him strongly for his lack of courtesy and respect, in contrast to the woman who had given this extravagantly. 
I, I love this thought. I think it's significant that by doing this, he transferred the hostility of the crowd around there towards the woman. He transferred that hostility onto himself. And in a sense, to me, that's a little bit of a picture of what we remember when we take communion and we think about Jesus on the cross, isn't it? That he took our sins, he took that hostility upon himself when he died for us on the cross. And then Jesus spoke to her, again, breaking the rabbinic rules, and confirmed that her sins were forgiven, that her faith and obedience would lead her in the path of peace. What a gift that was to this woman. What an amazing, extravagant gift. Now, as I've said, I really don't know well any of you here today, um, but I wonder if there are some who perhaps come to church maybe week by week, maybe carrying something of a sense of shame and a feeling that if, other, if others knew all that's gone on in my life, they wouldn't want to know me. They wouldn't invite me to their table as Jesus was invited to that table and this woman. If they knew, they wouldn't want me there. I meet people all the time who feel a little bit like this. And especially I meet women who, in the most horrible and difficult circumstances very often, have had to make decisions because they simply felt there was no other choice. We don't know sometimes the things that women and partners are going through, and they just felt they had no other choice. And very often for a lot of people, that's without the help, if you like, of the Holy Spirit of Jesus who, who guides us, doesn't he? But without that in their lives, have had to make uh, difficult decisions. Those who have made a decision to end a pregnancy. Um, and then sometimes for many years, they carry a sense of shame um, and a sense of guilt and actually just deep sadness. I meet women all the time that feel like that. You know, we have all, as I said before, we've all had to spend time in front of the sofa, and we still do on a regular basis, all of us here. And of course, we need to do this um, because as Christ followers, um, we need to come and to confess and to receive forgiveness and to know that peace that that woman went away with. Now, I know that as Christ followers, and especially for church leaders, um, there is always the challenge with a lot of these issues of walking within that tension um, of truth and of grace and of compassion um, and of boundaries because God has set boundaries in his word and on a longer training day we would look at what does God say about life? You know, what, what is God's, uh, what do we get from the scriptures on these issues? God has put boundaries in, our, in place which are there for well-being and there's always that tension of, work, of work walking between compassion and grace and truth and boundaries and we have to be very careful of our hearts um, as well. Um, but I know um, that some Christians like the Pharisees, even though they may be well-meaning, can add to our shame and make us feel unwelcome. Um, I want to tell you about a friend of mine called Genevieve. I've had the pleasure, the privilege and the pleasure um, of working in a church in Illinois in the States quite a lot, spending sort of periods of time over there working. And as part of the ministry that we've been doing there, we have offered and we have led post-abortion healing groups. Um, and I think about the third or fourth time I was out there doing that, a lady came along and she said, I was just so amazed to find this kind of a group, was her words, this kind of a group in a church. 
and she came to this post-abortion healing group um, and she shared her story and she told her she was originally from California um, but she shared that um, when she was in her early 20s she'd been in a violent relationship. She was from a church background but really wasn't following Jesus at that time, had been in a violent uh, relationship um, and had become pregnant with this man and she just felt at that time that this wasn't something that she wanted and she really did not want to fear that her life was forever going to be collected, uh, connected to this violent man. And she said, Jenny, I knew what I was thinking about doing wasn't right, but I felt I had no other choice. And so she booked herself for an abortion. Never told anybody until the day she came to this group about this ever. Um, and she said that as she went to the abortion clinic, as she walked down the path leading up to the clinic, in her heart, she knew what was right and wasn't happy with what she was doing really. But as she walked into the clinic, on each side of the path, there were rows of protesters um, with banners, and as she said, with not very nice pictures. Um, and they actually gave her, I couldn't quite believe this, she assured me it was true, they actually gave her tracks which, which said, if you do this, you will go to hell. And so she, feeling awful about herself, walked down into that clinic. She had the abortion, and when she came round, she was sobbing. And a nurse came over to her and said, be quiet, you're going to set everybody else off. And she said from that time on, she didn't cry until she came to our group. And she said that as she was sitting there trying to hold her emotions, and she suddenly thought, oh no, I've got to walk back down that line again. And she... That for her was what, having to do that, was what haunted her for weeks and months after her experience. <laughs> and you know, when she shared that, we were all crying with it. This was the first time she told anybody about this abortion. She'd carried that shame and that guilt and the shame that had been put on her as well. And I just felt I had to apologise to her on behalf of the wider church, if you like, because I don't think anybody should ever have to go that, to do that, to go through that. And as she came week by week and worked through our post-abortion healing programme, she came to know God's love and forgiveness. She had huge anger. She learned a little bit how to express that and to deal with that. And she came through to a place actually reconnecting with Jesus as well. And she was later baptised along with her teenage daughter. But you know, that sort of um, experience should never have happened for those who felt, yes, the law, if you like, was right, but we need to think as well of God's compassion and how can we do that? And of course, that's what we're thinking about here um, today. You know, there once was a little girl who prayed, oh God, make the bad people good and the good people nice. <laughs> And how many of you have met people that they're good people, but actually they're just not very nice? And, you know, we want to think, how are we presenting ourselves? And we want to be those that express God's love and his attractiveness and, and his compassion to those um, who might come um, to share with us. Just recently, I've had... Um, a, a, really a pleasure and, uh, of chatting with a lovely lady um, actually in the northwest of England. She's now a curate and she's training to be a vicar. And she has experienced two abortions. Um, and she was almost incapacitated, she would say, after this by a sense of shame. And this is a big thing for her. She's just written a dissertation on this whole concept of shame, of following an abortion. And in that dissertation, she sent me to it. And I just love this part of it. She wrote there, shame operates by forcing us to hide and isolate ourselves from others. Yet when stories are shared, it's possible to bring compassion, healing and restoration. 
And women may feel more confident in uncovering themselves and their hidden shame. It may also be that the wider church stops seeing those who experience abortion as far away and other. Instead, these women are seen as friends, neighbours and family. And this is the phrase that struck me. She said, it is easier to condemn a stranger, much harder to condemn someone you see every week. <laughs> Isn't that true? And that's why it's so important that we talk um, about uh, these things. Or as the um, wonderful writer Brené Brown put it in another way, shame dies when stories are told in safe spaces. We want these to be safe spaces, don't we? I'm so glad that at Amblecote here, this is your desire to make this a safe space. And I wish I had time to share more stories. I can't see that. You'll be a bit worried. Can't see that clock very clearly. But I'll be okay, okay. <laughs> to share some of the stories of those who found healing and restoration, maybe another time, maybe on another day. The reason we're concerned about this, you know, is that I don't know whether you know, but the statistic is that one in three women in the UK will have had an abortion by the time they're 45. I was shocked when I first heard that. One in three is higher than the incident of miscarriage, which is actually one in four to five. And so it follows logically that there will be those within our circle of friends, within this church, with those we meet, who will have experienced this. Um, and I rarely go to any event, whether that be a ladies' breakfast, a lunch, or service like this, without someone coming to share their story with me. And sometimes it might have been the first time they've shared that, especially in a church context. And so because of this, we've developed our post-abortion um, healing retreats, the sort of thing that I was uh, telling you about that Genevieve came to. These are actually retreat weekends where those who have experienced abortion and may be struggling, not everybody struggles in the same way, but those who are can come and work through a kind of post-abortion um, programme. Um, the next one, I think we have a slide. No, but I haven't got the date. The next one is actually in East Sussex, which is not that local, but very gettable by train. Uh, and it's from May the 6th to the 8th. Um, and on these retreats, it's always in a beautiful place. We think it's mostly it's women who come. Um, if, if, when women come and they've had the courage to do that, we really want to spoil them and to make them comfortable so that this is uh, the retreat element of the weekend as well as the programme that we're working through. Always in a beautiful place. And we just take time out to look at the emotions that most women go through uh, following an abortion. So things like um, guilt and shame, anger, depression, grief, um, and, and accountability and how we can then move on. This experience will always be part of our lives, but how we can move on in a healthy way um, into all that God has for us. I, it's just a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And for me, the privilege of leading those retreats with my friend Judy, who did the training with us here um, a while ago now, has been actually the most humbling and enriching I think, uh, experience in all my years of ministry and the various things that I've done. You know, someone once wrote, if only we would all grieve our sins as much as women who grieve the pain of their abortions. And I have seen that and I have been humbled um, by these women who come. Today, for all sorts of reasons, we may feel a sense of unworthiness. We may feel a spiritual separation from God and we could go on with all these things that the women um, and partners often feel. And yet, as we've already shared, the good news is that Jesus came to bring his gift of healing 
and of restoration and of extravagant, extravagant love. And that's for all of us here today, whatever um, our situation is today. I love the translation of this verse in Hebrews. It's a little bit of a generous translation, I think, but it says, I think it's in the Good News um, version. It says, see to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. (laughs) And that's our heart in all the work that we do in equipping churches and in reaching out to men and women. We want to see to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. Now, I do just want to share a story. I hope that some of you sitting here might think, I hope you don't think that I've got a bit of a down on local church saying that we're not very good at doing these because actually we're very good at doing a lot of this stuff and the church is the ideal place with its ethos of grace um, and of compassion. And I was sharing once um, down in Kent, actually, uh, sharing at a training day about talking in this vein. And a lady came up to me after and she said, Jenny, that is true. Sometimes we're not so good at doing these things. But can I just tell you about my daughter? And I just felt today that I should share this. Um, she said, my daughter, this lady was probably in her 60s, that years before, um, she'd been very involved in the church, a follower of Christ, been involved in the youth work. And actually on her way home from youth group one night, she was raped. And as a result of that, she became pregnant. Now, that doesn't happen very often, despite all the hype that you sometimes read for all sorts of circumstances. But in this case, it did. And she became pregnant. And of course, I mean, I have never been in that situation. None of us would tell somebody what to do. But she was given lots of advice, both for abortion and against it, from people within the church. And in the end, she decided that for her... Um, she wanted to, this abortion wasn't a decision she could make and so she decided to carry on with the pregnancy. And this lady told me, she said, Jenny, from that moment on, that baby, I'm warning you now, I'm going to wobble when I share this story. Um, She said, that baby became the church baby. And she said that my, my daughter didn't have to buy any equipment, she never bought any nappies, any food. The whole church came around and provided this. You know, this is what God calls us to do. The ethicist Richard Hayes, he said that there should never be an abortion within a church context for four reasons like financial hardship and lack of support and disability. This is what God calls us to do. And she said that when the baby, at the baby's dedication Thanksgiving service, when the pastor, oh, I'm going to cry, I just know. (laughs) When the pastor said, and who is going to raise this child? She said, the whole church stood up. (laughs) And, you know, I just love that image, that that's what God calls us to do. And that girl went on, became a lovely young lady. I, I, she, well, of course, she was biased. She was her daughter. But she became, um, a, 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 the, the baby that was born was a, a little girl, became a wonderful young woman and actually went to Australia and was involved in Christian ministry out there. You know, rape is evil. But God is a God who redeems and can bring good um, out of evil. And I just love this story. And God calls us to be that fellowship. Through my own experiences of grief in my life, and there have been many, (laughs) um, as I said at the very beginning, I experienced three miscarriages before I then went on um, to have my twins. And that actually, those experiences of grief brought me into this whole area of life. And I always say, I don't believe that God sends us those experiences, but he can redeem them. Whatever we may have been through today, God can redeem Uh, those experiences and it shaped my life and taken me to places I would never have thought I would go 
and then losing my husband so suddenly. And actually, in the last two years, Penny and I, and I'm one of six children, we've lost two parents, both parents, in the last two years. You know, we've known a little bit about grief, and I know as a fellowship here, um, that would have been your experience as well. There are lots of mysteries. I just love this morning, I some, thank you for the worship, a couple of the songs just really tied in with what I wanted. There are lots of mysteries, but we sang, didn't we, that God is faithful in the mystery. I just love that. Some things we just don't have answers to. There are mysteries, but God is faithful um, in the mysteries. And I've come to learn that God reaches broken people through broken people. I've certainly experienced that myself, losing Derek. God reaches broken people when we are broken. You know, we live in a broken world, and maybe this morning we might feel a little bit broken. I would not be surprised if there aren't some here this morning that feel that. The wonderful writer Henri Nouwen, he wrote, it's better to be heartbroken than heartless. The heartless don't know what it is to fall, so they don't know what it is to rise again. That's so true. But we don't need to stay broken. That's the message today. Jesus came to heal and to restore us. And just like he said to that woman, go and live um, in peace. He wants to give us his extravagant love. Now, I am going to end with just one other story, and I hope this is okay. This is a personal family story. I just want to share with you a time three years ago, our youngest daughter, Alice, who was the little one shivering at the end of that first picture. Um, she is now 32. I'm so old. <laughs> and she had her first baby, her first her, a little boy, her son, three years ago. And I was being the good mother, trying not to interfere, and her husband, Derek, was down there. She had a long labour, and I kept thinking, it must have happened by now. Any mums here that have had daughters go through that, you know the agony of that, um, and eventually got the call that she had had the baby, and she'd had a horrible labour, and eventually was rushed down for a C-section. I always think that's so cruel when you have to do the two things, and she had um, Thomas, and so I went in, um, I was down there within 10 minutes after she'd had the baby, and as I walked in and I looked across at Alice, I think there is a picture now, thank you, I hope it shows up on this screen, you, can you see that, it's quite... As I walked in, I just looked from the, the other side of the ward and I thought, what has Alice got on? <laughs> and I thought, what has she got on? And you know, these occasions, these big occasions, family weddings that we've had, are very, they've been quite hard for us without Derek there, you know. That. And, as, and as I walked over to her, I just said to her, Alice, what are you wearing? I thought, they're giving funny robes here in this hospital. And I thought, where is the baby? And then as I walked over, I could see Thomas just tucked down there. And she just said to me, oh dear, mum, it's dad's t-shirt. <laughs> and I was just struck wordless, very unusual for me. And I just stood and thought, oh my word. And she hadn't mentioned that, but just when she was packing her bag to go into hospital, she wanted to take something of her dad with her. And so she'd gone all through labour wearing this big, he's quite a big guy, big black t-shirt. But you know, as I stood there, I suddenly thought, and I don't know what made me think quickly just to take my phone out and take this photo. Um, and I suddenly thought, you know, that's a picture of God's love for us. And I just thought we were brought up very much with this Psalm 91, which I know through the Second World War, our parents used to tell us that this was something they prayed all the time, that God would protect us. And we've used that a lot through pandemic, haven't we? And in Psalm 91, it says there um, that God, he will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. And I just thought that is a picture for us 
of God's love and protection over us. Our Heavenly Father wants to be with us. At the end of our retreat days, we give the ladies, um, this is on the miscarriage retreat days and the post-abortion weekends, we give them a little box with little reminders in there of all the things we've talked about. And one of those things is a feather. And we talk about there that however fragile we might feel, our Father God loves us extravagantly. And he wants us to come under his protection, as Isaiah put it. And again, we had a song that referred to this this morning. He wants to give us beauty for ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of heaviness, for us to be planted like strong and graceful oaks for his own glory. We sang, didn't we? When all I see are the ashes, you see the beauty. I just love that line this morning. And so that is my prayer for those of us here today. And maybe for those that you know, maybe members of your family who may be experiencing a sense of shame, of loss, for all sorts of reasons that God would restore us. And and I think that scripture goes on to talk about restoring us to be like um, mighty oaks. I'm going to finish now. Just want to say, if um, we have a great website. It's We Are Open. I think there's a, a slide there. Weareopen.org.uk. Um, do go on there. There's a facility there where you can email for, for, for more information or whatever. That only comes through to me. So it's only me that would access those emails. And I'm very good at getting back um, to emails. If there's anything you would like to talk or to share, please email me. Please have a look. I've got some leaflets on the back. I've, I've mainly focused on abortion this morning, but we do work in the whole area of miscarriage as well. We have wonderful miscarriage days. Again, please do have a look and we have training sessions. Just a little plug, if anyone's free at lunchtime next Wednesday, we've got an hour session called Asking for a Friend. And basically, it's a kind of conversation style between me and this lovely young girl from the the head office at care, chatting about how can we help a friend or anyone we know who may have experienced a miscarriage. It's just an hour. Do please have a look at that. We'd love you to come and join us. But thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website www.amblecotechristiancentre.org.uk